Bitcoin, the network has no idea of um, anything that's going on outside of its own, uh, you know, boundaries. Um, with discrete log contracts and our Oracle tool, um, you can start relaying information from the outside world back into the Bitcoin network and having, you know, money flow a direction based on what the Oracle said. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype Wealth Partners or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating the Noise, I'm joined by Chris Stewart, co-founder of SuredBits. He explains how SuredBits is working to build Bitcoin solutions that allow transactions which are contingent upon factual information or real-world events. Chris breaks down how the Bitcoin network and its evolving toolset can improve upon our existing financial derivatives market, our financial infrastructure, and how it can offer solutions in the sports betting marketplace. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. Thanks everyone for joining. Today I have with me Chris Stewart, CEO and co-founder of SuredBits. Chris, why don't you give us a little bit about your background and then what's going on at SuredBits and how that relates to the Bitcoin network. So, uh, you know, I, I've been in the Bitcoin space for a while now. Uh, you know, I, I found Bitcoin in uh, 2013, 2014 with the whole um, Silk Road uh, stuff. It, um, I was, you know, trying to deposit money into Mount Gox before that imploded. Thank God my money didn't go through because I don't think I ever would have saw that again. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was really getting interested in Bitcoin in that hype cycle. And uh, you know, I wanted to found a company, uh, founded SuredBits. You know, that was in 2015. We initially started as an insurance company for Bitcoin. Um, insuring Bitcoin was very hard and uh, without kind of like developed financial markets around it that give you appropriate tools to, you know, hedge some of the risks that insurance companies take. It's a you know, very tough thing to do. So we went back to my background, which is software development. And uh, here we are, we're, you know, working on kind of a Bitcoin derivatives uh, protocol called discrete log contracts. And, um, you know, discrete log contracts give you the uh, financial toolkit to hedge risk um, without necessarily losing custody to your coins to hedge that risk. So you don't go have to go send it into, you know, some other exchange where uh, you may not see the funds again if they are uh, not managing their own uh, platforms risk appropriately. And uh, also, it, you know, it's better privacy. It's, uh, you know, you, you get the censorship resistant properties of Bitcoin and, you know, the discrete log contracts are a relatively new thing in the space though. So we are, uh, you know, talking with folks like yourself to figure out how we can build you know, useful financial products using DLCs uh, that are based on Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, we're getting out of low level uh, software development land and, you know, starting to talk to people that, uh, you know, work in, you know, industries like yours and uh, figuring out how to be as useful as possible. Now, you said you guys started originally as an insurance company. So that's pretty interesting. Were you, is your, ba was your background in insurance prior to that or were you, um, 
just like, Hey, there's a, there's a need to ensure lost Bitcoin or, or different parts of what happens within Bitcoin transactions. Is that what got you there? Or was it just traditional so, insurance background? When, when I graduated from college, uh, you know, I went and worked for state farm and funnily enough, they have a lot of offices down in the Atlanta area now. Mm -hmm. um, just at that time they were expanding into Atlanta and uh, you know, I had insurance on my mind and I thought, well, Bitcoin needs insurance, just like, you know, auto needs insurance too. And, right. you know, kind of naively went into the space without understanding the, you know, the amount of capital that you need to be an insurance company and, you know, the, the tools that you need available to you. And, you know, I, I had neither of those at the time. So went with, uh, you know, the uh, software development uh, toolkit that I learned in college and, uh, you know, here we are. Well, I mean, that's a pretty big move. And I think, um, you know, kudos to you. If you look back at some of the best companies that are built, it's the guys that just like, Hey, here's a problem. I'm going to go solve it. And then you get started and you realize you don't have the skills necessary in that area or yeah. the, the capital. And then you're like, well, what skills do I do have? And, you know, in your case, it was development. So um, ultimately you end up doing sort of what you started out to do. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, I haven't played around um, with uh, the crystal bowl or anything like that. Um, so maybe you can kind of talk a little bit about what that is for listeners and explain maybe where you guys are right now and, and what users are doing with, with your, your tools these days. Yeah. So um, like, you know, starting from the top, I guess, of like, you know, what the problem that we're solving is, um, you know, with these things called discrete log contracts, we want to be able to build Bitcoin transactions that are contingent on some real world event. So I want money to flow to Alice if, uh, you know, the New England Patriots win the Super Bowl, or I want money to go to Bob if the Atlanta Falcons win the Super Bowl. Um, with Bitcoin as it exists today, uh, there's no way for the Bitcoin network to reach out to ESPN.com or you know, the New York Times or you know, any of the sports data aggregators and understand who won you know, a game or what the even you know, simple things like, what's the Bitcoin price today? Um, Bitcoin, the network, has no idea of um, anything that's going on outside of its own, uh, you know, boundaries. Um, with discrete log contracts and our Oracle tool, um, you can start relaying information from the outside world back into the Bitcoin network and having, you know, money flow a direction based on what the Oracle said. Um, you are trusting these oracles to attest to, you know, who won the game or, you know, what the Bitcoin price is. And if they lie to you, you, you don't have any recourse. But, um, you know, we, uh, you know, think this is still a valuable enough proposition for people to build, you know, financial tools off of that we're, uh, you know, continuing to work forward with this stuff. So um, Crystal Bowl is the oracle part of a DLC. And that's just, again, like who, who won the game, who, you know, what's the weather outside? Uh, what's the Bitcoin price? It, it's, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but sort of like what we have modern day database somewhere, there has to be a source, i.e. an Oracle that says, here's the scores so that different things can tie in and, and ping it and hit it for, to confirm and validate that, you know, the score was actually 38 to 10. 
Yeah, yes, exactly. And like, you know, if you, if you work in like wealth management, I, I would imagine you deal with broker it brokerages yep. and, uh, you know, same thing you're for not, an insurance space, you got to get yeah. quote date. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're not like directly connected to the New York stock exchange and like, you know, monitoring the prices that Alphabet is trading at, you know, you're trusting your brokerage to relay that information to you. And uh, you can think of the exact same uh, architecture with DLCs. Um, you know, the other component of DLCs is, you know, actually building a bet or building a trade and finding a counterparty to trade with. Um, you know, going back to the brokerage example in TradFi, you know, you, you would go talk to your brokerage, you say you want to buy 100 shares of Alphabet, and uh, they would go execute that trade on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, the, uh, the process works kind of similarly with DLCs, you need to go find your counterparty through, you know, Twitter or, you know, some forums, Slack, you know, where, wherever people are trading the thing that you're interested in. And then you begin the negotiation process to build the Bitcoin transaction that represents the bet, that represents, you know, the, you know, who's, who's going to win the football game or what the, uh, you know, Bitcoin price is. So um, there, there is like similar architectures between TradFi and, uh, you know, DLCs in our, our world. But, uh, you know, we, we're still very much building out the market structure piece of this. Like, you know, how do you find buyers and sellers to trade against at, at any point in time? Well, and that's interesting because if you spent any time in in this industry in traditional TradFi, traditional finance, um, you know most big deals between investment banks, global banks, international banks, it's OTC. So yes. it's really people picking up the phone. I've got X. Are you a buyer? Are you a seller? I'll do the deal here. And then you know sometimes assets don't really move, or it may be a while before they move, and it's just this this. Hey, you know, we have this paper deal and you, and exactly. you place that trade inside of Bloomberg and it's a ticket system, but there's no like real source. And as we saw in 2007, nine with credit default swaps, everybody's yes. like, well, what I, you know, that didn't mean default to me. And the other side of the trade is like, well, it was definitely a default. And so to me, DLCs and, and <clears throat> things of that nature make a lot of sense because components in traditional finance that have been kind of murky and they yes. allow slippage of behavior or what did you mean by the term is, um, you know, all that kind of stuff gets taken out with these discrete log contracts and, and just smart contracts in, in general. So um, that was yeah. what kind of piqued my interest. And I, I think you have it exactly right. Um, you know, you, you bring up these great, you know, examples of OTC deals happening all the time and they're, you know, behemoths, like, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're very big deals typically between, you know, the large banks. And that's like one of the kind of niches that DLCs fit into really well. Um, you need to, you know, with DLCs, you need to put up your collateral up front for the bet that you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when you start, you know, if, if you do put up the collateral up front, you start reducing a lot of trust between the counterparties. And we want to minimize uh, trust between counterparties so that, you know, if the bank goes under like Bear Stearns or something like that, you can, you, you know, you can go look at the Bitcoin blockchain and see, well, you know, maybe the rest of their business is going haywire, but I know like they have enough money to fulfill the obligations that, uh, you know, of their bet, because I can go see it on, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain locked up in a smart contract. And uh, that's, that's exactly the uh, use case that we're, you know, fixing with DLCs or working towards with DLCs and Bitcoin. 
That's awesome because it really is a challenge, and and we're not talking about small sums of capitals. You got swaps, forwards, futures, options, exactly. all this stuff, esoteric stuff, exotics, and you know who knows? Uh, maybe there's a miscommunication in the verbal communication of what price, what time, the the contract details, and I'm sure that's few and far between. But um, automating that process, in my opinion, is if, if we look at all this gloom that kind of sits within the global economy and the mess that that everybody's, you know, the last handful of years, when you automate and take a lot of that out and just sit it out in the open so people can see it, people can check it, or if a set event happens, it's just money starts to automatically shift. There's no questions. And a lot of the legalities probably get wiped out. You would know more than I do, but that the court battles go away. Yeah, I mean, you know, the legalese is a language of its own. And, uh, you know, people in the finance industry uh, invariably have to end up dealing with that. And, uh, you know, not everything goes away with DLCs, though, you know, you you do need to be careful when designing your, uh, you know, smart contract. And the the typical example that I give to folks is, um, let's say, you know, we're back at the beginning of COVID, March 2020, um, the Utah Jazz were playing uh, that. Sacramento Kings, let's say, I forget who it was exactly. But if you remember at the time, like when, you know, COVID kind of broke was when the Utah Jazz basketball team tested positive and everybody's like, okay, these are guys, you know, and the prime athletes, like, you know, best health you can be. And, you know, we started getting worried about COVID then, but say if you were a sports better, you know, betting on this Utah Jazz for Sacramento Kings basketball game, like, and you didn't design your smart contract appropriately, um, how, do you, how do you represent the outcome of it getting canceled because of COVID? That isn't right. the Utah Jazz winning. That isn't the Sacramento Kings winning. That's like, you know, the, you know what do they call it in legal terms, force majeure or mm-hmm. uh, you know, unforeseen acts of God. And it is important to make sure you design your DLCs to account for things like that. While it may be very, uh, you know, a very small chance that it happens, uh, you do need to, you know, carve out cases for that so that you can allocate money correctly if that case does uh, come true. So we don't totally get out of a legalese world, right. but uh, you know, it, it is it, it should be thought of upfront, hopefully, so that uh, you can, you know, allocate money appropriately appropriately in those situations. And I faced that personally. Um, I had opening day tickets for Baltimore Orioles in uh, twenty twenty. Oh. Ouch. And yeah, so a couple of weeks. I have a good friend that's an Orioles fan. And, okay, uh, it's yeah. just a, a constant dumpster fire. Oh, like. totally. Yeah. And I'm not a fan. I always, oh, okay. uh, since a kid, since they built the stadium, I think it was 93 um, Camden Yards, I always wanted to go because okay. it was just a sweet, I was kind of a stadium nerd back then. And it was a sweet deal. It was first of its kind. And it just kind of just now getting around to it. And um, it, you know, season was canceled or postpone. And Ticketmaster was like, yeah, we're not going to cancel your tickets. And I'm like, well, Delta canceled my flight. I can't just, you know, in May, some on a whim, pick up a flight and go to Baltimore because I don't know what's going on in May right now. But um, it took until like August for them to finally give me my money back because it was that clause that you're talking about. It was just, well, unforeseen, never really happened. We don't know what to do. We're not saying we won't give you your money, but we're not saying like, Hey, these tickets are no good anymore yet. Um, so those kind of situations are interesting. And, but I think the, the power of it is like wall street 
has historically been integrated by personal relationships and, and phone calls yes. and desk. And what we saw from Uber, Facebook and, and Netflix and Amazon and Apple and all that stuff was the integration of system and people by connections. And, you know, Wall Street has a need for money to move around fast and that these types of things could, could make those connections happen you know, you lose some of the personal relationship side, but that's being lost in a lot of areas either way. And who knows what arrives in a positive manner on the outside, but replace that. I think it's like opening it up more than anything, because now you don't have to physically be there, you know, sitting in your trading desk on Wall Street, you can be anywhere in the world. And maybe you don't also have to have the, you know, typically prestigious credentials that these folks have of, you know, having to go to Harvard or MIT or whatever, like if things, you know, move out into the open in a more transparent venue, it allows people from all over the globe and, you know, to participate in these markets, which I think is a, an admirable goal. At least uh, it also, it helps just to, even if you're not directly participating in the market, you can learn a lot about seeing people participate in the market. And, you know, I'm a child of the internet more or less. And yeah. I've learned so much stuff by just, you know, browsing through random sites and coming across these like valuable tidbits of, uh, you know, information, and it really can, uh, you know, change your life, uh, some of this information that you come across. And I'm thankful every day that, uh, you know, I I was born when I was because uh, I I feel like I really got to catch that wave and then still am uh, riding it to this day, I guess. Well, to to speak to that, I mean, your story, you go to State Farm and you're doing that. And you just kind of like, well, I'll just go start developing this thing on Wall Street. That doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, you don't get to Goldman Sachs by like fumbling through some other place. And I mean, there may be some cases, but, you know, they're few and far between. Exactly. Your ability to go in and kind of participate in that kind of environment with, you know, no kind of Harvard background is is a pretty big deal. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, I think maybe some of the, uh, you know, the uh, elite of Wall Street still miss out on the uh, value added proposition. Like, I don't know if you know who Ken Griffin is, but, uh, you know, yeah, Citadel is I'm in Chicago and, um, you know, he, uh, he called Bitcoin a jihadist call on the dollar, which actually made me think maybe he does understand Bitcoin, (laughs) but um, no, like, I think he misses a lot of the, uh, you know, just access that you have as a normie to this stuff and you get to watch it out in the open. And like you said, like me, 22 year old, I went to university of Iowa state school. Like I don't have any, like, you know, pedigree background though. Yeah, d- decent CS program. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I found myself here. And uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the titans of Wall Street kind of uh, take for granted uh, the the access that uh, young people get to, you know, this budding ecosystem. And they can play with, you know, their own money. They can lose money, which is okay. That's how mm-hmm. you learn a lot of times. And, uh, you know, figure out uh, what works, what doesn't, and, uh, you know, be part of this uh, new market structure. And then you also get to learn why things are done the way they are in some cases, because sometimes rules are there for really good reasons. So, um, you know, I think you get the best of both worlds, honestly. And that's what makes me so excited to, you know, work on work in this industry, frankly. And and that's the exciting thing to me is the creativity. Uh, You know, as you mentioned, children of the internet, I'm 50, 50. I was first part of my life, no internet, second part of my life, all internet. So I'm, I'm sort of the, you know, very young Gen X or early millennial, like I don't okay. know which one I am technically, cause it always changes, but um, the, the creativity that the Bitcoin 
ethos and, and the ecosystem wrapped around create uh, cryptocurrencies and, and the crypto economy is missing from Wall Street. And yeah. you're starting, to, and that's why you see a lot of these Wall Street vets leaving for, um, you know, crypto gigs. Uh, because I think as as humans, we kind of thrive that ability. You know, regulations are great. We need some regulations and and some uniformity, uh, standard language. But um, the creativity is what's lacking in banking. Yeah, I mean, it's always like a you know, not all regulations are bad. Not all regulations are good. It's um, you know, there there's you got to go on a case by case basis. And, you know, in my opinion, what cryptocurrency is allowed for people to do is, you know, step outside of the regulated world. We're not in like a, you know, whenever you're like also playing with such high stakes, you really need a regulated environment. Um, you know, cryptocurrency is growing pretty rapidly these days. So we're probably heading that way um, in one way, shape It'll or form. It'll be mainstream. It's yeah. It, and, you know, part of me will be a little sad when that happens, because that means like, you know, you can't, uh, you, you aren't able to explore and uh, tinker and right. come up with fun ideas on a Saturday night with your internet friends and, you know, ship it on Monday and, you know, maybe be super successful, maybe, maybe not, maybe it's a dud and, uh, you know, but you need to play with these things. And if you can't take any risk, you're going to end up, you know, just stagnating, which, you know, we see a, a lot of firms on Wall Street these days is you're so risk averse that uh, you can't really do anything without going through 10 layers of bureaucracy to, you know, ship a new widget on the side of your website, which is like, you know, what are we doing here? And that, you know, for talented people or people that want to push the boundaries, that's really frustrating. And I can't, you know, blame them for being frustrated with that stuff because, uh, uh, you know, it's just, you, you don't have any agency on your own in, you know, in that world. Yeah, totally. I agree. Now, one quick question and, and there's different sides and, and different, but different parts of just the crypto ecosystem. Are you guys in, in some regards, kind of like Chainlink, they were one of the earliest first oracles that I recognize. I was flipping through their white paper. This was years ago. And I was like, wait a second for this whole crypto thing to work because you got siloed traditional databases and you got uh, blockchain networks, uh, Bitcoin yes. and others. I just saw the one picture and I was like, here we are an Oracle that sits in the middle and takes real world existing SQL data. And then we pump it in or, or vice versa from um, crypto networks. And I was like, for everything to work, that has to work. Is that sort of similar uh, what you guys are doing, but just on Bitcoin network? Yeah, it's very it's very similar. Like conceptually, you can almost think of it like the exact same thing. Uh, there is technical differences. Like we don't have a token, for instance, mm -hmm. where Chainlink does. You don't need to go through us for anything. Like we, uh, you know, we publish all of our software open source, and you can fire up our Oracle application Crystal Bull on your laptop and never ever communicate with any Sherdbits servers or. So then I could just input data for scores and say. These are the scores as Kane said they were. And if you decide to write contracts that used me. Yes. As you, okay. Regardless yeah, you, of what ESPN said happened. Yeah. You know, maybe you you become the guy for Orioles baseball games, going back to our example earlier. And, you know, you're, you're there all 81 yep. games or of the year or whatever it is. And you've got a cult following of Orioles fans because you have a, you know, a sports blog too. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You could be the, or, you know, Oracle for, you know, all the Orioles games or for whatever you want. Like we, we're, we're not here to, um, 
you know, we want to build tools in the future to make sure we can punish bad oracles because yep. bad oracles mean bad contract settlement, which means people losing money that's rightfully owed to them. So we want to, you know, build review systems, rating systems for oracles. But at the end of the day, you are the oracle and we can't, you know, we can't censor you. We can't say, no, you don't get to be an oracle. Um, and uh, we, we think that'll breed the best uh, kind of oracle solution. Um, we also have like multiple features that allow for using multiple oracles so that it, you know, just as in Kane, that uh, maybe is attesting to the or Orioles game, but it's Chris and Kane. And if they agree, the contract settles, but if there's a dispute, uh, you know, the contract something. just refunds its money or something, whatever you guys decide is the best uh, case in that um, when, when Oracles disagree. So we're working on uh, other features to hopefully uh, make sure Oracles can, uh, you know, be relied upon, but there is an element of trust at the end of the day. Yeah. And when I um, learned a little bit more about you guys through Ben Carmen talking at TabComp recently, um, it, it became evident to me, and, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, sports betting. I mean, that's a huge industry, especially with states legalizing and yeah. that become more the norm that your product could effectively have a big impact on growing, you know, like it or not, a gambling ecosystem, which... It, it, good or bad you know everybody needs some sort of um to do it in a, in the right manner if they choose to do it but people have gambled and are going to gamble yeah forever so it's like oh, all right uh you can now you don't just have to go to Be vegas or go to some website people can just spin these up on their own yeah and this is you know we you know i've had multiple sports gamblers uh you know reach out to me about this stuff already and uh, my understanding is how you know the uh, big time betters in Vegas work is uh, they just have telegram groups between each other. And you have this like reputation, you know, that I've seen this guy betting before and I know he's good for the money, you know, wink, mm -hmm. wink, nod, nod. Um, in some cases, you know, they don't pay up. And, uh, you know, with DLCs, you actually can make the person put up the money up front and then, uh, you know, settle the contract after the event occurs and you no longer have to worry about um, them actually being good for the funds. So this is like one of the first like, you know, use cases that we're really seeing like get traction behind it. And, uh, you know, it is in a new industry too here in the United States. Um, the other thing that's nice about DLCs as well is, um, you know, that you don't have, uh, you know, a centralized venue taking their fee, you know, which is upwards of 5%, I guess, in the yep. sports betting world, which, you know, is outrageous, uh, frankly, mm -hmm. you know, say if you're betting $100,000, you know, five grand of that's going to, you know, whoever your, uh, you know, exchange is, which, uh, you know, I think those will get competed away eventually, but, uh, you know, that, that's a sizable chunk of change uh, um, in, in any industry. Well, I mean, I think anywhere where you're dealing with, uh, capital that needs to be put up first. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunity. I mean, even look at the private equity world. What if you had deals that were done because uh, funds were locked in a wallet, you know, you subscribe today, you do all the subscription agreements and you have these capital calls and it's a lot of paper. Well, with something like DLCs or some form of just uh, crypto networks in general, and, and kind of like knowing that that money is there, it's good money. And then these contracts push and pull, you know, it, it saves a lot of time for people and allows a lot of innovation. Um, yeah. And if the, uh, you know, 
if the contract terms are rigorous too, like you said, it, it's you know more or less a push of a button to release funds now rather than uh, having to go through the TradFi uh, banking system, which causes everybody headaches, I think. And uh, also, uh, you know, having the uh, contract codified so that uh, you can go refer to it later and see, you know, what the exact terms and conditions are is useful as well. So that, uh, you know, if you do have a legal dispute, you have something uh, more rigorous to go show the judge, hopefully, and hopefully they understand it. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get there eventually uh, in yeah. the legal system. So were you originally, had you been a Bitcoin developer prior to uh, Shared Bits or was it just the Hey, I've got some development background, and I'm, I've got this idea, and I want to go push it. It it, it was the latter. Um, you know, I, I uh, you know went and did CS and mathematics in college, and just at the time, you know, stumbled across Bitcoin um, and decided, hey, this is something really interesting. It could die tomorrow. It could, you know, blow up to be the next big thing. And uh, I got very fortunate that it, you know, didn't die. <laughs> um, you know, at, at that time, uh, you know, Bitcoin was um, there. There was a real, very real sense that uh, you know it could go one way or the other. Especially going back to the Silk Road references and the Mt. Gox references. There was a lot of turmoil in Bitcoin at that time, uh, but. The industry has really cleaned up its act. There's still shenanigans that go on, mm -hmm. but I would say, uh, you know, the shenanigans are to a much lesser degree than they used to be, which, you know, I, I think is shows that the ecosystem's maturing and uh, it's something that you can count on being there for, you know, the next decade or two or, you know, the next hundred years, hopefully. Yeah, Bitcoin, uh, one thing we have learned is that Bitcoin never dies, right? Yeah, uh, it's always here to fight another day. And in Chicago, does being there close to futures pits and kind of the historical uh, options trading and that does that help you guys out in terms of like, who you might be able to talk to or access as you build out these contracts and work on these things? Or is, or is there any interaction? There, from... I would say, you know, the TradFi's ecosystem here in Chicago is just really kind of starting to warm up to the cryptocurrency industry. You And you've also got like segments of it, I'd say, like um, there's people, you know, here in Chicago, like Jump Trading, who is kind of very interested in the DeFi ecosystem and has, you know, funded Solana for Solana projects, for instance. And then you you have like people that just are interested in being market makers on like the Bitcoin CME futures contracts. And it, it, as you may or may not know, it's like those are cash settled. So you're not yeah. actually touching Bitcoin at the end right. of the day. You probably want to go hedge that risk somewhere. So maybe you go buy some physical coin or on, on Coinbase. But, uh, you know, that's a very, uh, uh, you know, that's not that's about as close to a TradFi experience as you can get in the Bitcoin ecosystem. So you really, you know, have um, you know, people running the gambit between like, yeah, it's just keep it as far away as possible. Um, you know, people like Citadel won't touch it at all. And then you've got, you know, prop shops on the other side that are like, hey, this is cool. Like we think this is gonna be the uh, next evolution of the industry and we can make money, you know, trading against these, uh, you know, contracts as well. So, you know, they're, they're much more interested in the technical side of things. Yeah, that's one of the things, um we see a good, not we see a good bit, but that that is a big thing is that distinction of the futures. What people don't realize, even when Paul Tudor Jones, I think he's in it for real now, but when he first came out and said it, I said, yeah, he's probably not 
really buying Bitcoin. He's buying CME futures and yeah. it's, not, it's, it's just not Bitcoin You because he's a hedge fund guy and, and they'll trade anything that's volatile enough because it gives them, there's many ways to layer in, layer out and many different strategies that you can build around that position that's really pegged to the physical, but they have no true exposure because it's all derivative. Now, I think his second or, or third go around maybe six or eight months ago sounded a little bit more like he has a real spot position and exposure to it. Well, and, and the, you know, say if you're Paul Tudor Jones, like you're used to just, uh, you know, opening up your brokerage account and, you know, clicking buy and you, you probably never really thought about like going outside of this like walled garden that is like, you know, TradFi and uh, worrying about custody, for instance, or you know, how often are you worrying about custody in TradFi? Probably not very much. Maybe if you're trading on the scale of Paul Tudor Jones, maybe you care about it a little bit. But um, you know that that that's like a kind of a Pandora's box that's been reopened in the crypto world that's like papered over in uh, TradFi. So like most of these guys, you know, have there's things that they take for granted in the TradFi world that cannot be as easily taken for granted in the cryptocurrency world and that like you know then you have to start working and then thinking and then uh, you start you know some people just don't want to learn a new thing and that's too much work and then others are really motivated to do it and find it interesting to imagine the re-architecture or re-architecting uh, finance and you know everybody falls on that scale uh, somewhere and, uh, you know, I think that's like a Jamie Dimon, for instance, like, I think he's very much over on the, uh, you know, I don't want to learn anything new and yeah. you know, just dismiss it all as a Ponzi or whatever. And, you know, not actually engage with the, uh, the merits of the, the topic at hand, which is, you know, sad to see. And that's definitely something that falls down to us down at the retail level. We deal with high net worth clients, but they're still accustomed to that custody, not being a question. Yeah. I just, I just you know, you guys place the trades, I see my assets, I get statements, I don't have to think about keys and wallets. And if I lose my password, I just call the 1-800 number and, and we get it reset and all that kind of stuff. So it is um, a tougher aspect and, and has been a barrier to entry. But as we've seen in the last year, year and a half, that barrier has dwindled because people are going out and doing it themselves institutions are kind of getting educated uh you're seeing some custody solutions come out that you know probably saw the the bitcoin maxi's not going to love it because you don't have your seed phrase and mm -hmm. which effectively you know for those that don't know is basically like a password but yeah if you lose it you don't ever have access to your money again and most people if we if we're real honest they just don't want that that's a risk, a to risk. most people it's yeah. a lot of risk <clears throat> And if you don't know what you're doing, yeah, you, you can totally lose all your money. It's you know equivalent to if you've got all your money underneath your mattress and somebody comes and breaks into your home, uh, you know they're going to take your mattress. Right? Or your house or catches on fire. Your house catches on fire or, you know, yeah, exactly. So all, the, all those problems, uh, you know, are still there just in digital form, right? Right. You know, you should... And, and you should, of course, you know, store your seed phrase in you know multiple places. Make sure you don't have a single point of failure. But then you need to consider, well, I shouldn't store it in too many places, right? Because then, if somebody finds one of my seed phrases, then they can take my money. So you you do have a you know a delicate balancing act, and uh, teams across the uh, custody ecosystem, 
have in Bitcoin have you know thought this stuff out pretty extensively. And I guess it you know it boils down to how much do you value um, your money being censorship resistant? Like maybe you aren't worried about uh, you know getting censored by your government or something like that, or uh, you know censored by you know whoever the powers that be are, and that's not a real risk to you, and that's okay. But in some places of the world, that is an actual real risk, and it's important that Bitcoin has that bearer nature to it so that people that don't live in such friendly jurisdictions uh, can still get their uh, wealth out in the case that something goes really poorly. You know, I like to think here in the United States, we'd be uh, much more open to immigration if people could bring, you know, what they had with them from their previous country. So they're not starting from square zero, you know, with Bitcoin, if they can bring their Bitcoin over from, you know, the country that they're immigrating from, they can go buy themselves a nice, you know, property, be able to pay for groceries and not be such a drain on kind of our social safety net. Um, and like that's like some of the promise that I hope Bitcoin can deliver in the future is, you know, becoming this global reserve currency that anyone anywhere in the world can use, you know, with the tap of a few smartphones rather than having to, you know, go through in the process of signing up for a bank account and praying to God that the uh, government will let you take your money out. Exactly. And it just, you know, as you, as you hit on, when you make that movement and people make movement across the globe all, all the time, you don't start over. Um, it's hard enough. You're in a place, foreign language, all that kind of stuff. And you don't know anybody and, and all that, all that goes with it. But as long as you've got some sort of financial stability on yes. you, it just makes it that much easier. Uh, one, two things on that in Chicago, Jack Myers, he's there. Or do you guys run in the same circles? Do you guys work together on things or do you guys you know, cross I, I have, paths at all or no? I, I know I know Jack. Uh, I haven't seen him in a you know since pre-COVID. I don't think so. Uh, you know I I haven't kept up with him lately. Obviously, he seems to be doing quite well for himself. Uh, you know, I was actually in El Salvador uh, last. That week. was the uh, second question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Che yeah, check it, checking out the uh, Bitcoin experiment down there, and uh, you know, Jack is you know a catalyst for the industry. I guess you'd probably say, and has uh, opened a lot of doors. Um, and, you know, but yeah, he hasn't been out uh, in the meetup scene much here in Chicago. And I don't know if that's just because of COVID or yeah. maybe he's busy too. So we're starting to turn the corner, I hope, and uh, we can start rebuilding the uh, Chicago Bitcoin community. But um, yeah, we've definitely had some headwinds in terms of uh, getting together with the uh, local government here in Chicago. We had TabConf at least. Yeah, yeah, we had TabConf. That was that was great. It was really good. Um, a lot of great people there, and Jeremy Rubin was talking about smart contracts as well. Um, so that was really it, it, derivatives was on his and Ben's uh, slides, and I was like, okay, well that makes sense to me. Something I want to find out a little bit more about. Um, but you know, I guess over the summer things open up more here, um, so not as closed, but um, it's been slow. Um, and then, so tell me about. El Salvador, you were down there, were you just checking it out or were you working on stuff or? So I, I, gave, I gave a talk down in El Salvador about, you know, DLCs and, uh, you know, where we're at with our progress at bits and what, you know, use cases we're seeing. Um, so that was good. Uh, you know, I got to see a lot of my international Bitcoin friends that I hadn't seen, you know, pre-COVID. And uh, so it's really good just, uh, you know, for, for, a, for an industry that has as much remote work like built into it as it does, like Bitcoin was pretty much remote uh, pre-COVID, but, uh, you know, you, a lot of um, goodwill is built up 
in those face-to-face -face interactions, even if it's just for a few days. Um, I, you know, I hate to admit this, but I'm much more likely to extend goodwill to people online that I've met in person than I am to like, you know, a, a random stranger that I haven't met before. And it's just my bias. And I think a lot of people are kind of that I way I think that's too. normal. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's normal. Yeah. And like, in, it's term, in, as far as like El Salvador goes, like, you know, there, for me, it was just a big new cultural experience. And then you get to have the Bitcoin stuff on top of it. You know, as far as the uh, Bitcoin stuff goes, you know, I think uh, we have a long ways to go on the educational side. Uh, you know, I'm not a Spanish speaker, for instance, and you know, Spanish is the native language in El Salvador. So I had a hard time interacting with, you know, people that actually live in El Salvador and are doing, you know, using Bitcoin on a daily basis. There is some like skepticism from what I could tell from El Salvadoran citizens. I'm not sure if that's directed at Bitcoin or if it's more directed at the government that, you know, that's implementing the Bitcoin stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's also just the technical hurdles too. the, the Chivo wallet, which is used in is the state sponsored wallet in El Salvador has had technical issues with its rollout. And uh, those things need to be fixed. Like I'm less worried about the technical stuff because I think that will get fixed. And, you know, as time goes on, that story will improve. Um, I, I am more worried about, you know, making sure that the, um, you know, the, the, the message is getting conveyed correctly to uh, the natives in El Salvador. And so they understand what Bitcoin's good for, understand why it can be useful to their country. And uh, you know, understand just some some of the technical technical stuff that goes on with Bitcoin. An example that I you know is at the forefront of my mind is uh, you know I went to this McDonald's next to my hotel. It had you know Bitcoin payments enabled, and uh, you know I went and purchased my meal or whatever with Bitcoin. You know, no problems. Everything worked just as advertised. But um, next to me there was uh, I presume an El Salvadoran citizen and. Uh, he was having a hard time. He wanted to pay with Bitcoin and you know, try it out. He seemed like an enthusiast. And uh, what he didn't understand though, was there's a difference between a lightning wallet and an on-chain Bitcoin wallet. And he just thought all Bitcoin wallets are the same. And I can't, frankly, I can't uh, fault him for thinking that. Right. Um, it seems pretty logical. Uh, so, but you know, in, in reality, there is a slight difference between the two. And uh, he missed that message and didn't understand that. So, you know, he, uh, you know, seemed like he was into Bitcoin and, you know, was uh, predisposed to our message and like wanted to figure it out really, you know, was excited to figure this stuff out. And he still missed it, which means that uh, the average citizen that just wants to go about their day and, you know, purchase their cleaning products or whatever, um, you know, there, there, there's still, I'm sure, light years of, you know, understanding that, that they need to get to. And um, we need, you know, uh, the people that, you know, I'm in the technical space, but we also have a lot of evangelists in the Bitcoin community. And if I had to point them to, a, you know, a problem we're solving, it's like that, uh, those educational gaps, I think, is something that we need to solve as a community. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, even here in the States, it, it's the same way. And that that's one of the challenges for those that are like, well, we'll just flip and make Bitcoin all of our payment system. It, yeah, it would be a difficult task to, to get there. Um, just from all the different intricacies that are involved that we don't think about because we just swipe a card. And, yeah. and that was not, you know, they didn't do that overnight. It was 50 years in the making. Um, yeah, so I <laughs> 
I, I grew up in rural Iowa and, uh, you know, we never did cards or anything like that. We always paid cash or check, you know, at places, mm -hmm. but cash always preferred. And, uh, you know, going to the payment system stuff, like, you know, we haven't even really, I guess we're just starting to adopt QR codes, like with the mm -hmm. COVID stuff. I don't know. Maybe in Atlanta it's the same way. It's, it's like just this year. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like out of necessity and you know, cleanliness, uh, we've started to move to QR codes, but, you know, you go over to Asia and it's been like that for a decade. So, you know, mm -hmm. payment processing systems can take a long time to, uh, get adoption and uh, there needs to be a real demand there. Maybe like a inflationary currency is enough to, um, you know, I guess, stir up that demand. But, uh, you know, here in the United States, thank God that we haven't had that problem in the past. So there, people don't have the motivation to go figure out a new uh, system. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it, the, the, the point there too, is that it's not that we need a whole new system, so to speak. There's a lot of parts that could be better, even the stuff like what you're working on. It's just that we need a system that has a savings mechanism. Yeah. And that's where, you know, Bitcoin does shine. And I'm kind of like Andreas Antonopoulos and, you know, the capacity issues, the education issues that you speak of, that may be slow, but people will figure them out. I mean, you know, just in your time, um, Think about how much, uh, how how far things have come along. I mean, the, the education between 2017 and 2019 was was pretty quick. So, yeah, I mean, uh, going back to my international Bitcoin friends that I saw, you know, in El Salvador, and you know, some of them I've known since like 2015, 2016. It's like you know, looking over to them over a beer and saying, like, can you believe that a nation state has adopted Bitcoin as it's like legal tender? Um, you know, people would actively laugh in your face back, mm -hmm. back in the day when you, uh, you know, would propose such outlandish things. So uh, we have come a long way that there's no doubt about that. And we're going in a good direction, I think. Oh, definitely, definitely. Well, Chris, I appreciate uh, today the time jumping on and, and sharing with me about SureBits and about your background. Is there um, any place that listeners could find out more about you or more about uh, discrete log contracts, lightning, stuff like that? I, I would recommend uh, following our company on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash SureBits, S-U-R-E-D-B-I-T-S. Um, my personal Twitter, if you want to hear uh, my ramblings, is Chris underscore Stewart underscore five, uh, S-T-E-W-A-R-T on the Stewart. And uh, yeah, that, that we, we post everything there. So that, that'd be the best place to go. Perfect. Well, thanks a lot, man. Yeah, it's great talking to you.